Welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. This week, I had the opportunity to speak with Professor Corey Olson, better known as the Tolkien Professor. Corey Olson is an English professor with a PhD in medieval literature and has been a student of Tolkien's work for as long as he can remember. You can find lectures and other free content from him at TolkienProfessor.com. Without further ado, meet Professor Corey Olson. Okay, we now welcome on Corey Olson of the Tolkien Professor fame. Professor, thanks again so much for taking time uh, to chat with us. Hey, good to talk with you. Can you introduce yourself? Tell us what you do. Sure, yeah. I'm Corey Olson, so I've been running the podcast called The Tolkien Professor for 10 years now. Uh, it only kind of like has been recently dawning on me how long I've been doing that. And um uh, and of course, I also am president of Signum University, an online university which I founded about eight years ago. We'll start with maybe the Tolkien Professor website. Sure. That was that was found uh, at least started in 2009. Mm-hmm. What were some motivations behind starting that website? Well, I I started my podcast because I was looking. So basically, this all started with like a a kind of. Um, I don't know, not identity crisis exactly, a kind of professional crisis I was having as a junior faculty member. So I was I was in a tenure track position. I was, you know, working on publishing so that I didn't perish, you know, and all that kind of thing. And that but but I was getting frustrated. And here's what I was frustrated by. Um, I, I published an article, uh, a, a Tolkien article, which was fun. I mean, I had fun writing it. It was, uh, uh, it was a good article, a, you know, got accepted and that was all great and everything. But the problem was, as I was like trying to tell people about it, like nobody had access to it because of course it was being published in a scholarly journal, which is like really expensive and most people can't afford to buy. Uh, so I, basically I, it's, it sort of started me on this crisis where I was like, Hey, like, what am I even doing with my life? Like, seriously, I'm going to do all this work, uh, in order to publish things, but like publication putting in quotation marks means basically putting it somewhere where almost nobody can read it. Essentially, like, it's, like how is that even public? Like the public doesn't have access to this. Uh, so, um, you know, basically I was just sort of like looking down, you know, the, the barrel of a career spent essentially just communicating with other scholars, which is not like, there's nothing wrong with that. Like other scholars are, are fun and everything, but it's like, why, sh- you know, do I really want to spend um, you know, the rest of my life just writing and, and working only to publish to this closed circle, you know, and engage in this closed conversation. And my own I my own desires have always been like much more towards teaching than towards pure scholarship. That is what I love is interacting with students and 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 you know, kind of getting things out there. So I began to think. Are there some alternative ways? Like basically, if I'm going to do all this work, why shouldn't I share it with more people? You know, and I and I said to myself, because I bet there are a lot of people out there in the general public who would be really interested in this kind of thing, but who won't even have access to it if all I do is publish it in scholarly outlets like this. Um, so you only half knew at the time. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, oh my, seriously, I, I, I remember saying. Uh, to a colleague of mine, I bet there are hundreds of people who would be interested uh, in this. And then, of course, so I so I decided to do a podcast. Uh, I chose podcast. So my first 
decision was like podcast or blog. Basically, that was my, you know, 2009 choice. And um, I, I decided for podcast just because I'm a huge audiophile myself. And also because as I, like classroom teaching was really my medium. So I wanted to be able to do something that is more like talking to students in class. Um, I mean, I enjoy writing as well, but, uh, but I decided in the end, if I was going to pour myself into one of the two, I'd rather be doing audio stuff. So I, so I did a podcast and yeah, sure enough. Um, after I started as, you know, released it in a podcast feed, um, for the first two or three weeks, I had, uh, I was really, really pleased because I had like between one and 200 downloads, uh, you know, in like the first week and stuff. And I was like, see, look, there are hundreds of people out there who would be interested in this. And then one morning I, you know, I wake up and I come downstairs to my computer and I just look at my stats and found that I'd already had 5,000 downloads that morning. And I was like, wow. what on earth is going on? And what happened was, uh, somebody in the Apple podcast, you know, in the iTunes podcasting, you know, thing had, uh, put my podcast in the new and notable section in, in iTunes. Uh, and that was like the beginning, you know, I had a million downloads within like three months of wow. starting the podcast. It was, and I, and so yeah, like the, and now that that's not necessarily saying a million different people, but sure. you know, cause I had but in the three months multiple episodes, but yeah, it was, it was, uh, very striking. So I was like, yeah, okay, I'm going to have to correct that. Hundreds of people might be interested <laughs> in this estimate. I mean, now. I think you take that stat sheet to that one guy who probably thought you were being a little overdramatic. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, yeah. And honestly, my, my academic colleagues had like no idea how to kind of parse this and everything. Um, but Anyway, it was, and that was, that was a huge encouragement to me. Um, and basically one of the things that that really kind of kicked off and is something that I'm still focused on through Signum University and everything else I'm doing to this day is that the hunger for this kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the, 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 the primary note, um, that I was receiving, like the, you know, if I could, you know, sort of like the pattern of the feedback I was getting from folks was simply gratitude. Like I, you know, I've not had the opportunity to engage in something like this, uh, you know, like real, like hard hitting <laughs> academic, like, you know, thought provoking lectures on this work that I love since college or in, of course, in the case of many people, um, not even in college, because, of course, back when they went to college, uh, you know, no one would teach Tolkien because it was, you know, not done. Yeah. Can you tell uh, me what you were teaching at the time? Because it wasn't strictly Tolkien then was it or oh no you, you mean in my like my day job well yeah, so when no, you were no. in 2000 yeah so 2009 yeah what, yeah. what was no, it that I, you was, were teaching? I was i was i was a tenured english professor i was the primary medievalist of my department that's what my training was in um so i did teach a tolkien class i did design and teach a tolkien class at that school uh but i was primarily teaching chaucer intro to medieval literature arthurian literature uh and a lot of a bunch of like you know surveys and things like that so i was i i I was the department's medievalist, uh, is what my day job was at okay. that time. And of course, being a medievalist has always been very congenial to being a Tolkien scholar. <laughs> that is a, a lot of Tolkien. Well, I was, I was about to say that a lot of Tolkien scholars 
come from among the ranks of medievalists, but it would be truer to say that a lot of Tolkien fans grow up to become medievalists because Tolkien <laughs> sort of shapes them and, and uh, you know, kind of predestines them to uh, a love for uh, the Middle Ages. But yeah, you uh, I think you said somewhere that that his book should come with a warning that the books might turn folks into medievalists. Yeah, it's true. Like you, you can't like be too careful, basically. Can you, you give know? us like a brief like what would you mean if somebody heard you say that? And they immediately thought Monty Python and the Holy Grail bring out the dead. (laughs) (laughs) What would you say? Like, what's a brief way of saying like, no, not that. Right. Well, okay. So uh, first of all, you know, Monty Python and the Holy Grail is one of the best medieval films <laughs> ever made. Uh, and the, in a lot of ways, they do more justice to the Middle Ages than most medieval movies. I mean, like you compare that to something like, you know, the Heath Ledger Knight's Tale movie or something. And Monty <laughs> Python and the Holy Grail is way more in touch with what the Middle Ages were like than that film is. There was no but anyway, like, but... queen score going on in the background. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Um, uh, but... But anyway, um, uh, cause Terry Jones actually kind of knew what he was talking about. He had actually studied, uh, uh, medieval stuff quite a bit. Um, uh, but, but anyhow, <laughs> not to sidetrack onto that, uh, <laughs> a but, worthy sidetrack um, though. It is a worthy sidetrack. Uh, but no, so I, what I, what I, so thinking about, you know, the middle ages and the study of the middle ages, the way that I would kind of describe my own coming to the middle ages, uh, and the influence that Tolkien had on me. Um, was there's, so medieval literature is very different. Like people, like the medieval people just kind of thought their culture was very different. They thought differently than we think. And it's, it's the kind of thing that you can still experience when you read like, you know, uh, uh, like Japanese literature or Chinese literature in translation, right? There's a, there's a completely different flavor. Like the, the way that people think who have been, you know, brought up within that culture, it's just different from the way that I think, you know, growing up within my culture. And that's really fun to encounter. It's really interesting. The Middle Ages are similar, like and they are similarly different. Right. Uh, to, to, uh, to, to from our culture. As a um, modern, I'm appalled, though, that they don't share my sensibilities. <laughs> well, a lot of people <laughs> get that way. And it's funny because, you know, we are hardwired now, you know, to not have that reaction against other people's culture. Like, I mean, if somebody said like, oh, those Chinese people, they should think just like me, like everyone would look at them and hiss. Right. Right, I mean, like, you know, you've got to be more culturally sensitive than that dude. They would get a new job. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But there's no such uh, presumption for historical differences. Hmm. Right. I mean, we, we, people do go back and look at the middle ages and look down on them and, and mock them for being different. And, uh, I mean, in ways that we would never, ever think of doing, uh, or at least, you know, not in public anyway, uh, to, to, uh, you know, I mean, it's just, it's part of our culture to be sensitive to other cultures, but it is not yet part of our culture to be sensitive to other times. And it's, and it's very similar, really. It, it, it works very much the same. So anyway, um, the, the middle ages are very different. And I, I found when I first began reading real, when I first like encountered 
an actual piece of medieval literature and not just like a story, a modern story about the Middle Ages. Um, my first my first real encounter with medieval literature was Sir Thomas Mowry's uh, Mort d'Arthur. I read uh, a, a version of that when I was in high school and I just lo I loved the whole flavor of it. I loved everything about it. I loved the the way that he constructed his sentences. I loved the, uh, the, the, the kinds of things that they describe and don't describe. It was delightful and funny and uh, and it just, it just, but see, again, I think that why, though I didn't realize it at the time, I had been primed for that hmm. by Tolkien because I had grown up lo loving Tolkien. I had, by that time I read Mallory, I had read and reread the Lord of the Rings probably 25 times in my youth. Um, as a combination of reading Tolkien very early and also growing up in a very geographically isolated place where I did not have many books or much access to a library, I tended to read the books I had lots and lots and lots of times. Uh, and so, even if you did, who would want to read those other books anyway? Right, exactly, right? At least, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah I'd, I'd break it up and I'd read The Lord of the Rings and then I'd read something else and I'd read The Lord of the Rings again and <laughs> I'd read something else. I mean, that was diversity. Sure. Um, so, um, so since Tolkien had therefore kind of formed a lot of the sort of the, you know, the, the, the fabric and texture of my tastes and outlooks already by that point. Um, in retrospect, you know, looking back at the things that I liked and, and, and what really drew it to me, I, I, I think it was the, the comparison I would make, it's, it's, it felt like that is reading a work of medieval literature for the first time was kind of like growing up in a house where there are like a bunch of really, really good high quality photos of like a particular country, right? Like, right. you know, say you grow up in a country with like, you know, parents who travel to like Ireland all the time, right? And so they have all these pictures of I of the places that they visit in mm -hmm. Ireland that they really love. And as a kid, you grow up looking at these pictures all surrounded by these pictures all the time, right? So like you've never been, you know, to like County Cork, but like you've been surrounded by images of County Cork your whole life, right? How I felt reading medieval literature is how I, I I fancy that a kid who grew up in that situation would feel if first he found himself in County Cork. You right, know? right. It's different. Like it's amazing compared to the pictures. Right. There were really really good pictures, but uh, but like you like you feel like you're at home. Like it's both it's strange and new and wonderful, but but it feels like home. Right. It feels like your childhood. Right. And that's what medieval literature was always sort of like for me um, uh, when I when I sort of found it. And and that's, uh, you know, so as soon as I went to college, I really wanted to study medieval literature. And, and so that's why I, I, you know, I became a professional medievalist, because uh, I love that. And teaching is what I uh, you know, what I found over the course of college. I really, really loved. And so that's what I really wanted to do. Um, so, yeah, it's that's the kind of see, it's. That, that's why, I, you know, I, I say there should be those warnings, right? Because it's it's like really <laughs> indirect like this. It, it's yeah. not like there's a recruit, a, a recruitment speech you can guard yourself against. You right. know, it's 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 just like part of the influence. It's a little more um, deadly, right? It goes after your, your your loyalties and your loves and your hates. Exactly. It, exactly. And, and it's because Tolkien himself uh, loved medieval literature so much. And, and, and he didn't he really didn't sort of. All right. Well, I always get in, kind of get in trouble when I when I talk like this, because, of course, people are often very quick to say, but Tolkien was a modern like he was a 20th century <laughs> writer and he totally was like it's not that he didn't live in the 20th century world. And yet 
the man was very thoroughly immersed in the Middle Ages. Like, I'm not saying he ignored the modern world. I'm not saying nothing happened in the 20th century or even in 20th century literature and literary movements that influenced him. Like, the, the, you, you can see all of those things. However, despite the fact that he did inescapably grow up in the 20th century, uh, oh, mostly in the 20th century, eight years in the, in the 19th, um, he... Uh, he, he was still like he spent most of his time consciously immersed uh, in the Middle Ages. And so therefore his work, like the Lord of the Rings, um, has in so many places some like more of that, like authentic flavor of how medieval literature works and how medieval literature talks than any modern author I know. I mean, um, it's like every it's 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 like the difference between somebody, you know, who has studied a language and achieved fluency over five years and somebody who really has lived, the, you know, not not a native speaker. Right. But it's like the difference between someone who like, you know, moves to Brazil and speaks Portuguese for 15 years in Brazil with the natives. Right. And somebody who has studied Portuguese for five years and has achieved fluency. Right. I mean, that to me is is was the difference between other medieval stories that I had read because I did seek them out, you know, other modern stories about the Middle Ages or that took place during the Middle Ages or medieval fantasies of other kinds. Um, that's the difference between those and Tolkien, at least it was in my experience. You know, when you get to the writers of Rohan, you know, and you hear you know, you hear Theoden chant, arise, arise, <laughs> riders of Theoden. Like that, that is what he does, why he does it, how he acts, how he talks, the verse that he speaks, mm. that is Anglo-Saxon. Like it's like that is spoken by somebody who, you know, lived with the Anglo-Saxons for decades, right. you know, uh, in ways that, you know, Tolkien did and so few other people have done. And uh, so, yeah. There are plenty of funny quirks and stories about him really doing, I mean, no, ma no matter the 20th century man that he was, really doing his best to kick it off of him, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Protest against in a lot of ways. Yeah, definitely. I, uh, I don't remember it perfectly, but his, uh, the muttering that he did after a motorcycle drove by, <laughs> I think about them being just orcs. Um, yes, yes. So, yeah. um, I want to return to, uh, a few of your classes and, and the Mythgard Institute, but before sure. that could, could we introduce for the person under a rock who J.R.R. Tolkien was and some of his works? Sure, absolutely. So J.R.R. Tolkien was a philologist. He was an Oxford don, and his, uh, his field of study was philology, which means the study of the history of language. He wasn't just a language person. He wasn't just a literary scholar. He was somebody whose primary interest was in the history of languages and how they change over time. Specifically, Germanic philology was his primary emphasis. So he studied. So he studied Anglo-Saxon literature and he studied Old Norse literature. But his primary emphasis in the like in that his his primary area of study was the was you know the Old English language and the Old Norse language and their relations to other languages and how the whole sort of Germanic linguistic tree going all the way back and how they developed and the different offshoots and the differences among them uh, and all of those things. So that was, that was his professional life was that that's, those are the kinds of courses he taught. That's what he studied. Um, and he, but he had been 
writing stories from a very early age. And he had this um, love for uh, the uh, for 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 fairies and the fairy tradition, traditional stories of elves and the fair folk and things like that, which you can you know of which there are many sorts of different versions of these stories through um, you know uh, Celtic tradition and uh, you know continental tradition and everything, um, and so he had this. Uh, he tended to think in his creative projects, he tended to think pretty big. So like his very first project, this was when he was like 20, his very first project was, he was sorry that England, not Celtic stuff, like not Ireland, not Wales, not Scotland, not France, but England itself didn't have a really robust native fairy tradition. Almost all of the sort of the fairy tales and everything that were part of the English culture were imported either from, you know, the Celtic tradition or from, um, uh, or from the French tradition. And, uh, so he was going, so he set out to invent this whole, uh, sort of the series of stories, this, this whole mythology really, which kind of gave, uh, which would be a native English, like English, England didn't really have a mythology. Um, again, it sort of borrowed from other mythologies, right. but it didn't have, England didn't have a native mythology of its own. And so he wanted to make a native English mythology, uh, which would explain uh, sort of the fairy tradition and uh, would, um, uh, would also sort of explain how England came to be like it was and, and uh, why it had these differences from other countries. Uh, so that was sort of his initial creative project that he started back during World War One, basically prior to World War One, really. So we're talking like late teenage Tolkien was 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 already sort of thinking in these directions. And um, he was. Um, uh, so he set out to write these stories and he was revising these stories. The Hobbit uh, was his first publication, uh, his first fiction publication. And that didn't come until 1937. Tolkien was 45 when he published The Hobbit. Um, a lot of people don't realize how late in his life and career his whole fiction like publication career was. Um, he was in his 60s when The Lord of the Rings was published. Um, so... Uh, so, so one moral of the story is if you want to be a writer and you're 40 and haven't published your first book yet, Hey, don't worry. Tolkien didn't publish his first book. He was 45. So, you know, right. there's still time. Um, but, um, anyway, so, uh, and the Hobbit, so, you know, the, the Hobbit came about, um, was only tangentially related to this primary fictional work that he'd been doing, developing these mythological stories. And he'd written by this point, several versions of them. And he'd, he'd written an epic, he'd written two different epic poems, epic poems <laughs> about, you know, set in these times. Like that's how not 20th century Tolkien was, right. is that he still felt epic poetry was a live genre. Anyway, so he, uh, he had been doing that stuff. But he started telling the Hobbit story to his kids. It emerged as a story he was telling to his kids because he had he had you know three young kids at that point, and he was telling them this story and he was writing it down because he really enjoyed it. And the story is heavily informed by his mythological story. It's not part of that world exactly, but heavily influenced by. It. And he borrows freely uh, from his own mythology uh, figures and incidents and uh, and characters. 
from uh, from his uh, from, from from his mythology. He ends up writing down uh, the Hobbit story um, and sharing it with some of his friends, like C.S. Lewis, read it and loved it and encouraged him to uh, to to continue it. He finally he sent it to a friend uh, to read it, and who she really liked it, and she happened to have a friend who worked at a publisher, and so she shared it without his <laughs> permission <laughs> with her friend uh, who then shared it with her boss. And, um, and they ended up contacting him and saying, Hey, can we publish this book? That's how the publication of the Hobbit came about. So he was never somebody, it's not to say that he never had publishing aspirations. He totally did. Um, and he definitely wanted to publish his works, but for a reason which when you read them is no surprise at all. He was having a hard time getting his early work. So he was wanting to publish his epic poems for crying out loud. Like this was his like highly unrealistic literary ambition in his early days, you know? Um, and, but, you know, then the Hobbit, so unexpectedly to him, this work that he had never really thought would be published gets published. Um, and then he's like, okay, now my ship has come in. I'm going to get all my other mythology stuff published. And the publisher was like, um, no, I have an idea. Why don't we do another Hobbit story? Can we get another? That was great. Can we get another little story about Hobbits? And he's like, so he sits down and he's like, I have no idea, man. Like I was not inventing this as like a world that would have multiple stories. I was just making a little fairy tale of my own for my kids. And so he's like, oh, but I'll give it a shot. So he starts writing a story and like all he can think of, he's like, okay, so let's start with Bilbo and let's give him a farewell party and have him leave the Shire. Uh, and he had literally no idea where Bilbo was going to go or what he was going to do. He was thinking like maybe Bilbo has another adventure after he sort of has his farewell party and retires and leaves the Shire. And then he decided, no, 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 wait, I'm going to pass it off. I'm going to, I'm going to make a, another hero. I'm not going to do Bilbo again. I'm going to give Bilbo an heir. Right. And then I'm going to have the adventure pass off to him. And that's where Frodo came from, though. That was Frodo's original name in the first versions. And actually for quite a long time, for like the first couple of years, he was writing these manuscripts was bingo. Bingo Baggins was the hero of the story uh, for, for, for a disturbing amount of time. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we were this close, man. Like it could have been ugly, but uh, anyway. So, uh, so, and and then, of course, the story just blossoms. And the moment that it does, it's really cool. Um, they leave the Shire, right? Or they're leaving Bag End and going off. So that if you know the Lord of the Rings, you you'll know that in chapter three, Frodo and Pippin and Sam are hiking across the Shire. And they encounter a black rider on the road, like some uh, somebody's coming up behind them on the path and they don't know who it is. And they think it might be Gandalf. So they hide just to like prank him, basically, uh, and jump out and scare him when he comes around the corner. But it turns out to be this mysterious rider in black uh, that they've never seen before and that they're really freaked out by. And when Tolkien wrote that, he had no idea. So like that, that that's the moment when The Lord of the Rings was born. He was still totally trying and had no ideas for what he was going to He had no idea where the story was going. He just like, let's just get them out of Bag End uh, and go off into the world and then we'll see what happens. And so he's describing this. And originally, like in the first draft, you can see um, it was it was actually going to be Gandalf that came around the corner. Like that was the, his original plan. Oh, wow. And then there comes this moment where he crosses out the word white, like a, a rider on a white horse. He crosses out white and puts black up above. 
and he doesn't know why. He doesn't know who the Black Rider is. He doesn't know what the Black Rider is. But all of a sudden, now this has become this ominous, spooky thing. Now there's an antagonist, and there's this ominous, spooky scene. And now he's like, dang, I got to figure out who that Black Rider is and what he wants with 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 Frodo. And, what, and that's how the whole, like, maybe it's about the ring of, maybe it's about Bilbo's ring. Maybe it's a ring wraith. Maybe it's the ring of power. All of the story of the Lord of the Rings grew out of that one random moment. So again, this is the, 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 the answer to the question that I'm trying to give about like, who is Tolkien and what was he? Tolkien, of course, becomes one of the easily three most influential uh, fiction writers of the 20th century. I mean, I, by any measure, uh, Tolkien has had at least as profound an impact in, on the world of literature, on popular culture, um, you know, from the middle of the 20th century as any other writer in the 20th century. Um, but this is but in a sense, all of that happened almost accidentally. Right. He was always <laughs> a writer. He was always a creator, uh, really as much of a poet as he was, uh, you know, a, a fiction writer. Um uh, as far as his own private interests were concerned. Um, Which but, he sure, certainly incorporated, right? Absolutely. Very heavily. Yeah, I, lots I, of poetry. I remember where I was when the Tolkien professor chided me for not reading the songs. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yes. Don't skip the poetry. It's so good. I totally understand why people do. But yes, that's that's why I have spent literally the last 10 years trying to uh, uh, encourage people and, try, and trying to help. Like, I know it's non-trivial, uh, trying to help people appreciate why the poets, why the poems are awesome. It's not just enough to berate people about that. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, so, you know, he was, he was, you know, he was this, this, this Oxford Don who loved language and, uh, loved medieval stuff and who through these kind of backdoor means and without any planning, at least the, they weren't the fulfillments of any of the plans he actually made. Um, he ends up writing the Hobbit and then the Lord of the Rings, which changes the world. Um, and it's, and afterwards had no idea what to do with himself. I mean, when the Lord of the Rings came out and received the kind of popularity that it did in his lifetime, I mean, especially, it was enough that it became a bestseller, you know, like in the UK in the 50s right away. Um, then when in the 60s, it became this like cult, uh, achieved this cult popularity in America, Right. And he was getting like a whole generation of hippies in love with like with his work and, and, and what he was doing. I mean, the the, you know, the college students of the 1960s connected with the Lord of the Rings in 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 droves. Right. And Tolkien had literally no idea how to handle that fact. Like it was, this was, I mean, and he would get phone calls. Like he had a listed number. He would get phone <laughs> calls. Listed number. <laughs> he did. He would get phone calls from people uh, like people of doubtful sobriety in California, not calculating that there's an eight hour time difference. He'd get like 3 a.m. phone calls from wow. people like, Professor Tolkien, I really dig your work, man. Like, I think this is really groovy. And he's like, what on earth is, like, I'm speaking with an alien from Mars right now. Right. Uh, and he know? was. <laughs> yeah, he totally was. Yeah. You know, from his, you know, uh, very, you know, conservative, pretty, I mean, culturally, as far as his own sort of culture goes, he was still very much, you know, kind of turn of the century, like late Victorian, you know, uh, 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 sort of, 
world that he lived in, you know, on a day to day basis, as far as like his like living conditions and and um, and all that kind of thing, you know. So, yeah, it was uh, fame and popularity was super weird for him. And again, not like really it didn't look anything like he was kind of hoping for and planning sure. for originally. Sure. Um, so, yeah, the last 20 years of his life were pretty strange <laughs> in, in many ways. Yeah. So now you started Mythgard. Um, yes. You started filling up TolkienProfessor.com. Yep. Um, now, I'd, I don't know about Sigmund. Sigmund, yeah, yeah. Can you tell me well, about that? Sure. Yeah. Signum grew out of, grew out of so basically all of this kind of grew organically and it all started with my podcast. So after, you know, as I mentioned before, when I saw the, the sort of the hunger for more of this kind of content, you know, the thing that I kept getting again and again was requ requests for more interactive stuff. Like people love the podcast, but they wanted, they wanted a chance to like, engaged like you would in a real classroom. You sure. know, they wanted to, they wanted to go. So I started experimenting with some like live Q and a sessions that I would record, um, uh, through Skype originally. And, um, uh, and then I, and then I, I, I launched an experiment where I said, Hey, okay, let's do a, let's do a seminar. Let's do a, let's do a live seminar with a, a bunch of random people uh, who want to participate. And that was the Silmarillion seminar, which is on my podcast. I started that in 2010. And, and again, this was my first attempt to say, let's try to, let's try to fill this, this niche, right? Let's, let's try to, let's, let's see, because I was a classroom teacher, but I was honestly super skeptical. I had never done anything in online education or anything like that. And I, you know, if you'd asked me in 2008, I would have been like, I, I don't think that'll work. Um, because I love the classroom. I love the connection with students. I really thrived on that. And the idea of, you know, communicating with a bunch of people over the internet just did not seem to me like anything equivalent. Um, but I was like, Hey, you know, what the heck, let's try this as like a podcast feature. We'll do a, a recurring seminar on the Silmarillion with some random people from around the world and see how that goes. And it was absolutely amazing. Blew my socks off. Um, the kind of, uh, exactly the things that I would have thought would never have been possible. Things like classroom chemistry, right? Like the way that the class kind of came together, got to know each other, the kinds of, uh, uh, active discussions that we had. Um, as a classroom teacher, I was blown away by this and I, and that changed my life. The Silmarillion seminar changed my life because I was uh, all of a sudden, uh, a huge convert to online education. I was like, okay, now that I've tried it, holy cow, this is amazing, right? You really can do. And of course, this is something that I feel like a lot of people are discovering now that they're being forced to during, you know, this period of isolation <laughs> during the COVID crisis currently. And everyone is now relying on internet connections for, you know, connecting to people. Right. A lot of people are now realizing like, yeah, actually it kind of works that way, you know, so that, um, uh, so I began once I, after I did that, I began looking around and saying, okay, so who's doing it? C clearly some people have to be doing this right. You know, now that, cause that was, I mean, 2010. So things like webinar technology and stuff was still pretty new back then it was there, but, but it wasn't very mainstream yet. Uh, but I was like, somebody's got to be doing this, right? I mean, like some educational institution has to be doing this. Like I know there are online schools out there and everything. Surely they're taking advantage of this kind of technology to do this sort of live interactive class because holy cow, this is fantastic. And, Which, and I, could I could immediately see like how people 
like, you know, the kind of opportunities this would sure. provide for people, you know, to do who can't get to a physical campus. Oh, man, so many possibilities. Which, if I could interrupt you, yeah. by the way, when you say something like the Silmarillion seminar changed your life, for yeah. those who don't know, it's not as if the Silmarillion is uh, the most like on the page turner end of his spectrum. <laughs> yeah, no. It's a bit like uh, reading the Old Testament for the first time. Or, you yeah, know, it, it really it, is. It so really is. That, that in and of itself, you know, if you can prove it with the Silmarillion, then, <laughs> you know, yes. it's like, then exactly. you obviously can put all your chips on it. Right, exactly. Yeah, it was definitely not just relying upon the fact that we were having this gripping discussion about. I mean, yeah, no, the, the Silmarillion is wonderful, but as you say, it's not the, the, exactly the reason for the seminar. Why I chose that is because so many people do have a hard time reading the Silmarillion. Um, which, by the way, the Silmarillion is was published after Tolkien's death by his son Christopher, who is his literary executor, and it basically is Christopher putting together in sort of the most finalized version possible all of that mythology stuff that Tolkien had been working on since he was like 18. Um, and that so, makes sense too, given that, you know, what you said earlier about the one, about the publisher just being like, ah, give us another yeah. story. Yeah, exactly. No, you can absolutely see why they didn't want, like if, if you just come to them out of the blue with the Silmarillion, right. they're going to be like, ah, uh, no, thanks. I'm good. Um, so anyway, yeah. So, so the, so as I said, I was I was I was looking around and saying somebody's got to be doing this because this is such a good opportunity. And what I found was no, in 2010, brick and mortar schools were all still very busily looking down their noses at the concept of online education, and the online education schools were all still doing really static, asynchronous online education. Like essentially, the the model you know, for, you know, the traditional online education, like the, you know, University of Phoenix kind of model, um, was essentially like the old fashioned correspondence course that's been going on since the 19th century, you know, where you mail away and they send you assignments and you do them and you mail them back and then they mail you your grade. Like that's been happening again, like since the, you know, uh, since the 1800s. Um, and essentially most modern online education was doing exactly that same thing, just much more efficiently, essentially. They weren't really doing, they weren't really attempting to do a synchronous online classroom. And so I'm looking on and nobody's doing this. So this was like the second crisis of my career. The first crisis was my little publication crisis. And, and do I really want to spend the rest of my life just uh, publishing in a closed circle? The second and bigger crisis of my life was this, where I, where I, 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 I made two calculations. First of all, I looked around and I said, this, somebody needs to be doing this. Nobody's doing this. Somebody needs to be doing this. Um, and I was looking around at all of my podcast listeners who kept clamoring, like, we want to take classes. We want to do stuff. And I'm like, there's a demand. Nobody's filling that demand. I really want to meet the demand of my listeners. You know, like, like my, all of my teacher instincts are saying, would I, you know, I want to be doing this. And, but here's the other thing. The other thing, which was even a, a sort of a bigger deal was the student debt crisis. <clears throat> I, you know, as a tenured faculty, or I was not yet tenured at that moment. Um, but as a tenure track faculty member, I was really sensitive to this because I'm an English, I was, I was an English professor, right? So every year I would be hanging out in my office, talking with senior English majors who are graduating from our, the private uh, liberal arts school where I was teaching with, you know, $80,000, $100,000 in debt and very little in the way of job prospects. And it was heartbreaking, heartbreaking to be a part of that system, you know? Um, 
And, you know, I come from a, a very, uh, <clears throat> a very sort of lower class financial background. Uh, I mean, there's, I have a great empathy for the people, you know, for the, the students who are struggling and then struggling to deal with the debt afterwards. Um, the student debt issue always really, really, really bothered me. And so that was the other thing I started to do. I started to think this through and I'm like, you know what, if you do these classes online, right, if we, if you basically, if you can create a system where you're teaching courses and you don't have to pay for a campus at all, right? I mean, the problem with the student debt crisis, okay, one of the problems with the student debt crisis. <laughs> I was like, right. man, let's buckle up. Let's do this. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's actually like the fundamental economics of this are not hard, right? Uh, the, there's a good reason. Well, or you could call it a bad reason, but there's a reason that that higher education continues to charge the tuition levels that they do. And that's because they're barely making their expenses like their expenses are really, really high. Uh, you know, they're not like when 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 when, a, when, a, when an institution of higher education charges you sixty thousand dollars a year in tuition plus room and board plus fees. They're not like bankrolling and rolling around in piles of money in the background like they're barely cutting even, you know, on their expenses. So now I'm not like defending them, but I'm saying they can't just cut their tuition in half. Like it's not possible. They would go out of business if they cut their uh, their expense, their their tuition in half or in a quarter, which is what they would really need to do in order to have a serious impact on the debt situation. But again, so here I am, right, thinking about synchronous online education and how awesome this is. And I'm like, you know what? You could cut costs if you didn't have a campus. Right. If you could not even have any real estate at all, if you could not have any of those expenses associated with the campus, if you could only if your only expense was people. Right. You know, a, a few software licenses and a bunch of people. You could reduce the overhead to the point where you could charge. You know, you wouldn't have to do any fancy schemes. There wouldn't need to be any, you know, grants or scholarships. You could just afford to charge less for tuition um, and afford to charge what students can actually afford to pay, like to work their own way through college, for instance. Um, and so, I, you know, I was doing the math and I'm like, yeah, you know, this would work like as you know, this could this th this could happen. Nobody's doing it. So I. um you know, I, I made the decision, you know what, I want to do this. Like, I, I, I think this could happen. I think this should happen. Um, you know, I think that this would be a huge benefit to everybody if it happened. So I started it. The Mythgard Institute uh, is what I initially began basically because I was, you know, sort of focused on um, fantasy and science fiction. And, you know, basically my, my you know, because I was, I was, I was sort of going to my podcast audience. Um, I, changed the name to Signum University uh, pretty quickly. Uh, the Mythgard Institute still exists, uh, as, you know, sort of the, the, the way the structure works. You know, basically, I want the Mythgard Institute to be the sort of public facing. Um, it, the, the Mythgard Institute is still like the ultimate fulfillment of my podcast, you know, like where we do lots of public broadcasts. Um, I still do all the broadcasts that I currently do are basically, you know, happening through the Mythgard Institute. Come to the Mythgard Institute and do our Mythgard Academy courses where I'm going like chapter by chapter through like a bunch of books that our people vote on, you know, uh, to choose which books that we do. Um, or my exploring the Lord of the Rings class where we're going through the whole Lord of the Rings sentence by sentence and discussing it as we go. 
Uh, we're 139 sessions in as of this past Tuesday, and we're about a third of the way through the Council of Elrond. Um, uh, so <laughs> we're we're on, we're on pace to we're on pace to take something like 25 or 30 years to discuss the <laughs> Lord of the Rings. Um, <laughs> There's still time to jump in. There's plenty of time to jump in. Still plenty of time to jump in. Um, but anyway, all that stuff is still the the Mythgard Institute stuff because we 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 still want to operate in that space. But there's also this larger vision for higher education and for having an impact on student debt uh, and uh, uh, and for uh, really kind of forming and it's kind of over the years since I've been doing that that officially launched in fall of 2011 and it's been growing since then and uh, you know part of the goal there has also been to to kind of you know the, one of the the sort of uh, metaphors I often use is that I, I have seen the building, have, having to build a university from scratch, uh, especially doing it in such a way that has never really been done before, like to do it, uh, we're, we're crowdfunded, like we don't have any funding. We've never had a grant. You know, we've never had, a, we didn't start with a $25 million grant, you know, startup grant. Um, we've been literally crowdfunded from the beginning. Um, it's been a completely grassroots uh, 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 thing. And I don't know of any university that didn't start with a gift, <laughs> you know, like a, a grant. Almost every founder story of every university starts there, right? With like the guy who gave the land to, you know, whatever. Um, uh, we, um, we don't have that. Um, instead, what we have is a community of people who are really excited about building something new, about using the metaphor that I often use, hitting the reset button on higher education and saying, okay, how can we rethink a lot of this stuff? How can we set up a new higher education, which is native to the 21st century, native to the digital world, right? Since we don't have a campus, let's not pretend we have, let's not like use the same structures that physical campuses impose upon university structures. Let's think about it differently. Um, and let's create an environment that's going to be better and more positive for staff, for faculty, for students. Uh, you know, let's, let's, let's get out of the student debt rut. Let's, um, let's, uh, while we're at it, uh, try to, you know, uh, solve a bunch of the problems of traditional exploitation and, uh, and a lot of inequities that happen in the faculty and staff world. Um, you know, in the, you know, in the, in the, in the employment world of higher education, let's see if we can change a lot of those things and set up the, our new little 21st century academic utopia here at Signum University. So <laughs> that's been the project that I've been, that I've been doing while, of course, I've been continuing, obviously my Tolkien discussions and things like that. All of this, but all of this has come from that. All of this came from ultimately the Silmarillion seminar, you know, from that first experience of sure. online education and uh, and uh, the desire to, to 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 do things differently. And we're now contemplating, we're planning to be launching within the next few years uh, a, a totally innovative new undergraduate program, which seeks to think beyond the the merely uh, uh, so the sort of the simplistic traditional degree structure and begin to think about more dynamic ways in which modern people need to, uh, to, to benefit from education and to, uh, to be applying their education to their careers and things. So, um, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. We're just now launching, a, uh, like within a month, we're going to, we're, we're, we're within this month, we're launching, um, a new professional development program for people who really need to improve, not their hard skills, but their, you know, 
what we call foundational skills, you know, the kinds of things that they te- that, that you learn from humanities classes, which a lot of engineers and uh, and corporate types don't take, you know, when they're in college. <laughs> right. uh, things like communication skills and writing skills and interpersonal skills and things like that. Um, but we realize that there's a, a lot of ways in which people can benefit from this. So broadening sort of to the to the humanities, my my vision is for Signum to be um, a real a 21st century haven uh, and uh, and and support for the humanities moving forward. It's really exciting, uh, all the stuff that um, is going on now and that and that and that we're doing. Signum Path, by the way, is the name of our new Signum program, Path. our new professional development program. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, but uh, anyway, all this stuff you can find on our website, signumuniversity.org. Um, but it's uh, it's it's been a it's been a real so yeah. And all of this grew out of you know my podcast, which grew out of you know my uh, little personal crisis about spending my whole life writing to a, a <laughs> small circle of other scholars, uh, and you know my decision to kind of buck the system and decide that I wanted to pursue alternative publication methods for my scholarship. So right. all of this just goes to show that uh, Bilbo was completely right when he said, you have to be careful when you step outside your door <laughs> because you never know where you're going to get swept off to. Uh, and certainly my own career trajectory is a pretty good example of that. I love it. I love it. Well, it shows. And like I said, I, I'm super grateful for for your time. I don't want to take uh, any more. You've, you've generously gone over. Um, I I wanted to ask, so one of the things that I first took, uh, while I was in college, just on the side, I just, Mm -hmm. uh, was so enjoying it and enjoying, uh, you know, when I would crack the Silmarillion, I was like, I just need help. So yeah, I totally enjoyed, uh, the class where we started with Leaf by Niggle. Mm -hmm. And then I think we ended with, it may have been Return of the King, but basically you took us through an assortment of early Tolkien and then the Lord of the Rings. And I remember just singing. That was one of the best classes I've taken. And I was just streaming off of your website. So uh, <laughs> if you had to pick for someone here who, who's uh, heard us talking about it and they want to dip their toe in, where would you want to send them as a start? Well, I would say, uh, I mean, one really good place to start uh, is actually, so a lot of my older material, I mean, it all still works and everything. Um, but a lot of my later material actually is what I would push people to with one exception, uh, or two exceptions, I guess I would say <clears throat> is, uh, first my original Hobbit series, like the very first podcast series I began with at the very, very beginning. Um, that's still a pretty good place for people to start to kind of get a feel for the kind of, you know, analysis that I do and the kind of, uh, um, the kind of studies that my podcast is going to feature. Um, and it's also, short. It's eight episodes. Uh, you know, I read through of the Hobbit in eight episodes. Um, the next place that, I, that I would encourage, and this is especially for people who aren't already really hardcore Tolkien people. Like if you're still kind of new to Tolkien and wanting to break into it, the Hobbit series is a good place to start. Also, um, if you look for the, and this is actually in a separate podcast feed uh, called the Mythgard Academy. Um, in the Mythgard Academy feed, I did a discussion of the Lord of the Rings, uh, so one different series on each of the three volumes, and those are, again, short. It's like six or eight episodes on the Fellowship of the Ring, like maybe ten episodes on the Two Towers. It's 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 very manageable, and that'll give you a pretty good overview of the Lord of the Rings, and again, get get you a really good flavor for the kind of discussion that we have. If you're more of a 
Uh, you're already a, a pretty hardcore Tolkien person. You might still enjoy those two things. I, the Silmarillion seminar is still a good, I mean, it's still a good listen even now, 10 years later. Um, uh, and that's still out there on my Tolkien professor feed, the Silmarillion seminar. Um, but I would also strongly recommend uh, the current stuff that we're doing. The whole Mythgard Academy series has been so much fun. I started that in 2013, and we have read a number of different books. We did The Lord of the Rings. We did Unfinished Tales. We've been going through the history of Middle-earth volume by volume, and that has been intense. It's been so cool. Um, if you want this long-term um, uh, you know, this long-running series, which is essentially uh, an in-depth look at how Tolkien's thought grew and developed over the course of his life. It's fascinating, fascinating to see this happen. Um, we're in Morgoth's Ring, volume 10 right now. Um, I just did that episode last night. Uh, episode five of Morgoth's Ring just happened last night. So we're they're still happening live on a weekly basis, so you can tune in live. Um, the, that's the other nice thing about the Mythgard Academy is that there's a whole bunch of like separate series on books, like a you know a five class series on on uh, on on one book. Like uh, I just did, C.S. Lewis's Out of the Silent Planet. Um, or you can do uh, uh, you. I just finished that in like February uh, of this year. Um, or you can do a. Uh, um, uh, you know, like a, a, a longer, you know, one of the series, like the Unfinished Tales class or something like that. Or you can do, we've done Ender's Game and Dune and The Princess Bride and uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And, but, you know, th these are things, I don't choose them. They're, they are voted in. They are, they are elected by our people, uh, uh, by, by Mythgard supporters. So, um, uh, anyway, so that's been uh, that's been hugely fun, and there's so there's there's a lot of opportunity to go and just choose. We also have this is all on our YouTube channel. If you go to the Signum University YouTube channel, uh, you can find all of all, all of these in different playlists. So uh, you can kind of choose which book you want to go through. That's another really great place to sort of jump in. And then of course there's exploring the Lord of the Rings, the big kahuna, uh, uh, which is a wonderful, uh, regular community. We have, uh, about a hundred people who, who tune in live every week and participate in the class on, in an ongoing basis. And that started, uh, we're in our fourth year now, uh, of that class. Um, and, uh, yeah, it is the most super in-depth study of almost anything anywhere. I think, um, uh, uh, I, I'm not even sure that like Talmudic scholars have done a more in-depth study uh, of anything than we are doing of the Lord of the Rings. I love it. <laughs> so I love we'll it. see. Well, <laughs> there's so much, a buffet of all kinds of things. Uh, your success is clearly no surprise. There's so much stuff there. Uh, our audience, I know for a fact, will love it if they're not already a part of it. One last question for you. If there's a, a guest I have on that that they have a ton of of their work involves a, an individual person. So one of the last ones was I had Dale Alquist of the Chesterton Society on, um, mm -hmm. and I asked him if G.K. Chesterton were to sit down with you, do do you think he would like you? And so <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you if you were to sit down with with J.R. Tolkien himself, ha have you ever thought would he like me? You know. I don't know that he would. I think I would. There, there's a lot of things about me that would really annoy him. Um, I love the honesty. And I think yeah, for yeah. most of my heroes, I almost think the exact same. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again, uh, Professor Olson. You've been a fantastic and super generous with your time. Everybody, please go check it out. Signumuniversity.org. Signum, yes. That's right.
and right. TolkienProfessor.com. You can he, he tweets, he does it all. Uh, check out their YouTube page. Thank you so much. No problem. Thanks for having me. <laughs>